Welcome to the Failing Forward podcast. My name is April Houston, and I'm a senior program officer with Care USA's Health Equity and Rights team. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tanmai and Dr. Sridhar of the Bihar Technical Support Program out of Care India. They are going to give us some background on the program and explain how they see data, specifically building a culture of using data for decision making, as an intervention in and of itself. Welcome, Dr. Tanmai, Dr. Sridhar. Thank you for chatting with me today. Yeah. Hi, thanks, uh, April. I'm Dr. Sridhar. I'm Dr. Tanmay. Great. It's so great to hear from you both. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful that you're willing to explain a bit about your work. So can you, uh, can you both tell us about yourself, um, your role at CARE, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about what the Bihar Technical Support Program is and how it works. The Bihar Technical Support Program is a project that is run by CARE India in Bihar with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's been running for the last uh, eight years or so. The idea of the project is to provide technical assistance in a wide range of domains to the health and uh, ICDS programs of the government of Bihar. Uh, primarily the health and nutrition related programs. The technical assistance is provided as a partner of the program as a facilitator, as a catalyst, we do not implement any health interventions ourselves. Uh, we might, uh, on the ground at times, do some pilot, some study, but even those are done in conjunction with or with, with the government functionaries as implementers. And we remain as external facilitators and catalysts. So this is the Bihar Technical Support Program. Uh, very broadly, we look at our work as being in three broad buckets. One is strengthening the quality of clinical care and facilities, particularly intrapartum care for deliveries. Second, the improvement in outreach, preventive, and promotive programs, uh, which is the frontline workers. And these two buckets are the primary service delivery arms of the government, of the health department, of the government behind. And the third bucket are the support systems. Where do you get the supplies from? How does how do procurement processes work? How do flood fund flows work? What happens to, for example, the electrical transport mechanisms, blood banking system, and so on and so forth. There are a number of systems together that constitute uh, the support systems that help either the improvement of quality of clinical care or the improvement of the strengthening of the outreach programs. So the role of the Bihar Technical Support Program is to look at each of these three buckets and provide a range of different technical interventions for the to the government of Bihar to improve each of them. This is broadly what the Bihar Technical Support Program does. I am the technical director of this program. I am a pediatrician in, in terms of my background and the educational background, but I have been a public health practitioner all my career. Uh, and for the last 10 years, I've been closely associated with everything from design to evaluation of the Bihar Technical Support Program. So I'll invite Dr. Tanmay to introduce himself. Thank you, Dr. Sridhar. Uh, 
being an epidemiologist and a medical doctor, when I initially was roped into this journey, then this particular program was evolving in its pilot phase to the statewide implementation. At that time, there was a plan to have a structurally embedded but functionally independent unit for generating evidence, measuring wherever there is an intervention, tracking the intervention, highlighting wherever there is a reason for positive deviance, and where are some barriers working as a fire alarm, identifying them and trying to identify the potential drivers of those barriers and some testing of some solutions. That gave rise to the team called Concurrent Measurement and Largely. I lead this team and with a group of experts starting from ground level enumerators up to state level epidemiologists and public health experts, the job of this team of combining a meter to fire alarm for all the implementational processes under PTSD to ensure that evidence builds into the system to question wherever there is some confusion and to highlight something wherever there is some conviction. That's CML. Uh, so in other words, uh, the uh, CML unit is what gives us unbiased evidence to say what is happening to uh, government program implementation processes as well as the outcomes. So we keep, a, keep an eye on a wide range of indicators which goes beyond what the government's own information systems can provide. That is what adds value uh, to this whole intervention. Wow, so this is a very unique program, it sounds like, in the world of care and in the world of health in general. Uh, for its sheer size, I think it would uh, mark itself out. We have a state as a population of 125 million. There are about 600 hospitals, non-teaching hospitals, and plus uh, uh, about 200,000 frontline health workers who are on the, in the outreach and that I described. So as BTSP, we are trying to influence the entire system end to end. So in that sense, it's definitely vast. And if you add to it the fact that we have a virtually completely independent measurement team that keeps telling us whether we are going right or wrong, it definitely is something unique in its size and scope, yes. Another uniqueness of this procedural team is that the whole system is generated in a way that we don't deal with data as data only. Each figure actually is talking about a life which is embedded into this measurement system. And that's why it is building into an intervention calling data as itself an intervention. Yeah, we look at almost everything from an outcomes perspective. That is, how does it affect the last person in the most disadvantaged, most disadvantaged communities and their women, their children, and so on. So, in a sense, we are trying to impact those lives and the measurement tells us that they're going to get there. 
and keeping these lives in the center and population as our main uh, perspective. It is also important that as this is actually being utilized by the program at the ground level at its outside, it has data up to its maximum granularity. You will find a lot of data generation process and a lot of data-based implementation process when based on a sample survey, things are generated for 500 sample size or something where we come up with data for doing implementation being designed for even at each facility level, coming up with observation for each of them. So sometime for the universe. And there are some studies and some other uh, measurements whose sample size is more than 25,000 to 80,000 because the implementation directly is talking about the 125 million and all these are unique Yeah, yeah. For example, what often is referring to is, uh, for example, the, the large sample sizes. Why do we come up with such large sample sizes? Because there are 38 districts in Bihar, and we are trying to measure population level parameters for a number of coverage output outcome indicators at the district level, which means the district level sample size with a certain precision comes to let's say about a minimum of 400 and that's what makes these sample sizes large and we measure these but not, we, we are doing different measurements for different age groups so that multiplies the whole sample size into very large numbers so and in other words we have a large amount of data that keeps getting generated from a number of different entities and each of them with a certain level of granularity which also makes it unique i don't think this kind of data is available for virtually any other program to extensively at least across uh, maybe across the world uh, can you explain how you found this data that you're collecting uh, to identify and course correct different issues and problems uh, with the health system in BR? Uh, it, it's, it's a little difficult to answer this question in brief because almost our entire business and job here is to do precisely what you just asked. You know, that is that's the heart of our. So there are just numerous examples. When, when Bihar started off uh, uh, implementing what is called today the National Health Mission, uh, which was a program nationally to accelerate the improvements in health systems across states, particularly with a, with a focus on maternal child health, one of the most important uh, indicators of one of the interventions that it tried to influence was the rate of institutional development. What proportion of women deliver in, in institutions versus at home? So when we started off, when we have started off the National Health Mission implementation about 15 years ago, around 15%, one five percent of all deliveries were happening in institutions, or almost all of them in private institutions. Today, around 80% of all deliveries, age zero, happen in institutions. And 60 of those 80 in public, that is, government institutions. This has meant a massive improvement in the infrastructure and functionality of uh, facilities where women come and deliver in government institutions, their uh, accessibility, and so on and so forth. So it has been a massive intervention on the part of the government. This was driven by cash incentive, which was provided to women, which is the equivalent of about $20 in today's terms, to, if they came and delivered in government institutions, they get $20. Uh, 
this incentive and the way it was implemented because the frontline workers, the archers were also incentivized to identify women who are likely to deliver come in, to come in and deliver only public health institutions. So these two interventions, these two incentives, cash incentives together uh, caused a massive acceleration in the uh, rates of institutional delivery in India. Uh, and in these 10 years, or 10 to 15 years, as I said, it has, it has gone from, uh, institutional delivery rates have gone from almost zero to more than 60. This went on actually until it reached around 50%. Uh, about three years ago, we were around that level. That is 70% of uh, institutional deliveries were happening in institutions. And then it had plateaued there for about, uh, for almost three years, it had plateaued in the rate of 70%. In other words, what the, you know, the cash incentives are no longer adding further increments to the rates of institutional delivery. And we said, let's look at this problem carefully. This cannot, the very fact that the same cash incentive is no longer helping means that there must be something else that we should be looking at. And when we look at our own data, kind of survey that Sanna was describing, the household survey data, which we collect annually, going on for a long time. So we discovered certain risk factors for uh, for delivering at home, and we said, okay, so let's identify those geographies which have these risk factors and exit, and let's go after that. And then we realized that actually those risk factors were spread across almost all which means it was no longer a one-size-fits-all central intervention code that such as cash incentives that could further accelerate uh, the rate of institutional delivery. So we asked our team to look at their own context in each of the 534 blocks of the 38 districts that we have to identify based on the you know, survey data that we had, we had a list of potential risk factors. We gave it to our team and said, okay, now it's up to you. You now look at what is happening in your own decentralized uh, geography. Work with the local government authorities and hospital authorities, health authorities there, and figure out which of these factors you would like to really, how widely prevalent they are in your own context and how you would like to tackle them locally. So we gave kind of a menu of diagnostics and menu of uh, solutions and said, now it's up to you, right now. And we were actually expecting that this would take a few years to you know, start taking effect and start learning something from this. To our surprise, the next annual survey showed a, uh, a, a sudden upshoot of about 8% in institutional deliveries. And that came up from our, our data. And that basically told us that this approach had worked. And that, and, and the effect, the impact lasted for another two years. But then we would like to add something to this. Yeah, one small interesting part which actually played its role was. When it was found that there are certain pockets, there was a, an effort based on the data that the local program manager tried to go in the community and find out what are the different uh, local reasons for having those high numbers. Which ended up finding out those local causes, addressing which ultimately ended up in this change. And interestingly enough, we are still seeing those upward graphs remaining now. 
So data itself actually plays a role here. Um, take another example. Uh, you know, we are, as I said, we, are, we, we have one of the most important impact uh, outcomes that we are looking at in this program is to help the state government achieve its uh, earlier MD, uh, MDG goals and the SDG goals. Essentially, mortality goals for uh, neonatal mortality, child mortality, and uh, um, maternal mortality. And there's a lot of lessons that we've learned along the way, thanks to data. So one of the things that we started off with, for example, was that in order to contain child mortality, there's already a large program that the government of India implements all states, which consists of uh, training frontline health workers to diagnose and uh, treat cases of uh, diarrhea and dehydration of children and cases of pneumonia in children through uh, simple measures, for example, ORL zinc and amoxicillin. Uh, this, uh, we took up the, an assessment of the, this part of the program to understand whether there was a way of, uh, you know, making these programs more effective. And we said as a part of, you know, in preparation for this intervention, we said, let us look formatively at what is actually killing children, particularly the post-neonate mortality. Uh, to cut a very long story short, what we did find is, A, that the post-neonate mortality as measured and reported is actually over-reported. Neonate mortality was under-reported. Post-neonatal mortality was over-reported. It means fewer children after the neonatal age were dying than before they were, number one. Number two, that acute dehydrating diarrheas and acute short duration, presumably bacterial pneumonias, were so few that they accounted for less than 10% of all post-neonatal mortality. That shifted the focus of the whole intervention from saying, okay, what do we do with uh, ORS zinc and amoxicillin, how do you make them more effective? To saying, do you really need to do? And do you really need to? Uh, is it even uh, uh, practical to expect that such large investments in ORS zinc and amoxicillin will in fact lead to measurable changes in post neonatal mortality? And so the whole program took, a, took another direction. And that was a, uh, that there's definitely fully driven through data that was generated related to uh, mortality rates and mortality causes in, among children. Somebody would you like to add something? So this one you already covered these examples. There are other examples like we always used to say that there are different issues with recall and that's why we cannot actually talk about data when we are talking about pregnancy and what could happen in the case studies and all those stuff. And data just told us that even when we are asking for what did happen in the last pregnancy to women who delivered this child regarding <laughs> using our household survey, we are finding the estimates are actually matching exactly within the second decimal point level with our position to what, what actually did happen during the year when she was there. I think talking about very interesting because that's, 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 that's just a kind of an innovative way of using data that we thought of, uh, 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 you know, essentially when you go and do a household survey, ask not only about what happened, for example, you're asking something to uh, the mother about 
you have a child who is currently, let's say, less than three months old. Can you tell us whether you are exclusively breastfeeding that baby? Or when did you start breastfeeding the baby at birth? Was it immediately within, within an hour or whatever else? Uh, then you, you also ask the same question to her about her previous child and say, okay, tell us what did you do with your previous child? Did you also uh, feed that baby within an hour after birth? And the difference between the two is what we see as a real thing. So you, that, that gives us several categories of, uh, uh, of possible change. Some who had been practicing this earlier, but are not practicing this now, which means it's a deterioration. Some who did not practice early breastfeeding earlier, but are practicing now, which is a positive change, and some who did not change at all. So this gives us far more granular understanding of who actually changed in behaviors. And this kind of particularly focus on behavior change and how to measure it in the field, I think we have a huge number of examples. And we have, I mean, if we had time, we could talk, talk more about them. But I think this is one of the the unique features of the CML intervention. That is, yet through CML, we are able to measure parameters, which otherwise are simply not measured at all in either the routine program or in most surveys such as the DHS service. So we are getting to a level of granularity which is programmatically very, very useful, and at the same time, uh, something that is unique. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this for hours and do multiple podcasts because it's also fascinating how you've made sure that you're asking the right questions, you're asking the right people, and you're getting, like you said, this level of granularity that has big implications for how, you're at, how the program actually operates. So this is really fascinating. Thank you for those examples. Uh, we are running low on time. So I was hoping uh, to ask for your advice for the rest of us. Um, what, how can other programs learn from your example here? How can we work to build a culture of inquiry that make use of data second nature, not just among ourselves, but also with our partners and our government partners um, as well? Issue that they understand that not only data people understand data, actually everybody understands data, and data is very powerful. Everyone of us for everything we use data, it's actually there in the culture. We just try to create a halo around the data users as if data is to be used in a particular way or a particular purpose. We need to move on from there. We have to share, share, share as much as we can with conviction and share as a pack. Uh, to have the confidence that our data is of quality, it should be actually placed on the table and let the audience decide how to use that with all clarity, starting from 360-degree view of transparency with those who need it to those who use it. Then everyone will actually start becoming data friendly and data heavy. As our experience said, we started our journey when the government system used to ask us, why do you collect data? Then the next questions came, oh, you also collect this data. And now we are getting the question, why don't you collect this data? Let us whether you want to add something. <laughs> so, uh, see, uh, the, the kinds of data that we are collecting doesn't come very intuitively to uh, conventional program managers to accept. Um, so for example, let's say, uh, 
conventionally they are, they are far more used to uh, you know indicators like what proportion of women have had three ANC checkups or four ANC checkups. We dive a little deeper and say, you know what, whether it's three or four doesn't make any difference uh, unless it actually starts impacting her pregnancy outcomes in some way. And we, so we, we measure, for example, how many times in the last trimester was her blood pressure measured? Was she ever diagnosed uh, as somebody with pregnancy induced hypertension? So that level of granularity is something that they are, that, that most uh, government programs are not used to getting. Into. Therefore, it takes time. But once they get used to it, it is quite addicting, and they they do start asking for more uh, data, as as Tanmay was pointing. They they then they tell us, okay, why did you not tell us beforehand that you are collecting this data? Did I told you, you know, they have five more questions to ask, and so on and so forth. So it make, makes a difference in terms of uh, their acceptance and ownership of the data. And based on our collective uh, wisdom gathered during this whole period. Data alone doesn't tell the full story. It has to be properly contextualized with the programmatic journey, and that's why a unit like us, being embedded with a program like BTSP, actually can yield the maximum result being co-designed with the government system, and that can actually be a plan. Whatever it doesn't need to be a much bigger always. It can be of different size and shape and format. But this kind of concept. May be considered as a pointer for data-driven decision making. Great, thank you so much for these insights. I am uh, blown away by all that has happened in Bihar, all that has been accomplished over the last ten plus years. And thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of this to us today. Thanks, thanks April. That was a nice conversation, and we do hope we. Uh, uh, get opportunities to uh, talk about this and also learn about similar experiences from elsewhere okay. uh, team. Great, thank you so much. Thanks to everyone for joining us on this episode of the Failing Forward podcast. If you want to learn more about the Bihar Technical Support Program, visit bihar.care.org. Thanks so much again for joining us today, and we hope you'll tune in for the next Failing Forward podcast coming up soon.